Good day, everyone, and welcome to this Lightbend podcast. I am sitting with Leon Stigter, Principal Product Manager for Aka Serverless at Lightbend. Today, we are discussing a whole bunch of things, including the origins and promises of serverless, some of the limitations of stateless functions for serverless, why data-centric serverless applications need more data access patterns to get the job done, how Aka Serverless aims to democratize access to the features and patterns developers need to be successful, and more. Leon, it is great to speak with you, as always. Um, before we begin, can you just tell us, our audience, a little bit about yourself and your background in software and, and any hobbies you have? <laughs> Yeah, totally. So first off, thank you for having me. I'd, I'd almost start with um, longtime fan of the show, first time caller. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just very happy to be uh, to, to be on the podcast. Um, so my name is, is Leon Stichter. Uh, as, uh, as Oliver said, I'm uh, part of the product management team here at Lightband for Aka Serverless. Um, I, I started my career uh, a long time ago, back when I still lived in, uh, in Europe at, at a company called, uh, called Tipco. Um, and that's where I learned about, about the ideas of serverless. And, you know, in all honesty, I thought that was going to be a fad. So I, I really didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, and the thing was, I started deploying everything to, uh, to a bunch of servers and then those servers crashed, and I obviously forgot to take backups, as you know, good people do. Uh, so I had to redo everything, and that's when I thought, wouldn't it be so nice if I didn't have to do all of these things? And that's when I thought, oh right, I remember about this serverless thing. So that that's sort of how I got into into the whole serverless thing. And it, just a few things about myself, as as you asked. Um, I pretty much love technology. I love talking about it. I love going to conferences, you know, when we still actually did those. Um, I also love blogging right. about it. And like my personal mission is to, um, is to eat cheesecake in every city that, uh, that, that I visit, um, <laughs> which, uh, which actually started with a now good friend of mine, um, uh, Jim Pazone, who, uh, who works at Gardner. He, um, he got me the, uh, the cheesecake from, uh, can I actually name brands here? I, I think we're okay there. Okay. Um, it's called Junior's Cheesecake Place in, uh, in Brooklyn. They have the best cheesecake I've, I've ever had so far. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to try it in every city. And, um, and every, city, really... every city you've tried it in has been inferior to the original? Um, yeah, unless they actually import it from, from there. Uh, but, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. So right. if, you, if you have any suggestions, please feel free to send them my way. Well, I think uh, Junior's Cheesecake... Uh, Delicatess in Brooklyn will be happy to uh, <laughs> get your endorsement. So let's get into it. Um, let's start at the very beginning. You know, where does serverless come from? You you said you years ago you thought of it as as something like a fad, but it's now coming back in a big way. So bring us up to speed. Absolutely, absolutely. So. In, in all honesty, I had to sort of Google this or Bing this uh, in order to make sure I got all the dates right. And technically, the first platform that ever existed was uh, was Zimkey in, in 2006. And I actually read the original um, the original uh, press release that... Uh, uh, that that uh, O'Reilly did on uh, on Zimkey um, as it was launched at Euro OSCON 
Um, so, mm. I mean, that was that was definitely some time ago. And unfortunately, back in that day, it, it just wasn't a success. And about two years later, the uh, Google team actually launched something that I'm going to guess a lot of people still recognize, which is called Google App Engine. Um, so that probably was the uh, the first commercial success of, of a serverless platform. Though, in all honesty, I think that most people are going to recognize AWS Lambda as like the big start of serverless, which mm. which launched in, in 2014. So that's like only seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And around that time, that's, that's sort of when AWS, uh, with my countryman Werner Vogels, um, started talking about the serverless operating model. Like people want to manage or should, uh, sorry, let me start over again, uh, that people should leverage managed services as much as possible and focus your efforts on the, the actual things that matter, the things that move the needle for your business, the, the, the business logic, as, as a lot of people call it. Mm -hmm. So the business logic or code or the stuff that, whoever is using the software ultimately needs. Exactly, exactly. I mean, when you when you look at a website, the things that matter are like the text on there, the, the styling, the things that are important, but shouldn't necessarily be like your core business is where do I host it? How do I run that server? I mean, those, mm -hmm. those things are important, don't get me wrong. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what's most important is that your website is up and running, that it has the content that you want. Mm hmm. So AWS Lambda launched in 2014. They've uh, they've probably made some <laughs> changes and updates to what they're offering along the way. What 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 are we looking at for serverless in terms of benefits today? You know, why do why are we go? Why? Why is Amazon now saying that in, you know, by next the end of next year, 50 percent of their workloads are, are going to be using Lambda's? So that's that's a great question. And I think in order to 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 really get to to an answer, if you will, we, we sort of have to break down what serverless means to begin with. And um, I know that for a lot of people, they essentially try to equate a function as a service or, or FAS uh, to serverless. But it really is a spectrum of capabilities that people can use without having to worry about that undifferentiated heavy lifting, uh, like spinning up servers, like patching everything, you know, things like that. So while FAS is absolutely the cornerstone of, uh, um, of serverless, there are so many more tools and technologies that actually play a big role in what, uh, what serverless does. Things like databases, things like message queues, things like object stores. Um, I'm going to guess that a lot of people don't know this, but uh, tools like S3 and it was either SNS or SQS, I'd, I'd have to check that, were essentially the two first commercial products that, uh, that AWS launched. Um, and those are absolutely serverless because you get the, uh, the object store or you get the messaging power without having to worry about all the underlying infrastructure. And only later, uh, people started adding a lot more tools and functionality into it. So serverless really is this broad spectrum of capabilities that developers can choose from. And it, it really helps developers be, be faster because, you know, if you don't have to worry about the servers, if you don't have to deal with the infrastructure, then everyone can focus on building, on deploying that business value. 
it it is also ultimately cheaper i mean uh when when i started my career and i'm gonna guess a lot of people will uh will sort of identify with this but when you purchased hardware as a company you'd always purchase for peak because you know that you needed to make sure if you if you went uh, had a had a black friday or a really great sale then you your traffic was going to spike so you needed to make sure you could handle that traffic now with serverless it really is all about you only pay for the stuff you need you pay for the value that you get out of your platform so it's also a lot more flexible i mean it's it's the the dynamic scaling up and down to make sure that um that the platform can handle your scale so that as a team, as a company, you're not going to be worried about, so what if my if my new app that I'm building is going to be an overnight success? In that case, I don't have any, any hardware to handle it. Doesn't matter. Your serverless platform is going to handle that. And it, it obviously is so much more automated. Um, all the availability, all the responsiveness, all the scaling, that's now not your concern anymore. You've essentially delegated that concern to, uh, uh, to a provider. And they will take care of that and they will have to manage that. So at the end of the day, everything comes down to it's it's less risky for you because you're essentially trading that uh, that risk. It is a lot faster and you don't have to pay as much. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that's that definitely puts it all in a nutshell. Let's talk about uh, what most people are, are using or, or at least thinking about in terms of serverless these days, and we'll call them stateless functions. Um, and there's probably other ways to describe this, but why, why are some organizations looking to go beyond stateless functions and what, what are the implications of, of what they're trying to do? Sure, absolutely. So first off, I really love that question because it's it's really oh, at the heart of <laughs> because it's really at the heart of what what does serverless get you to begin with? So um, let me let me just give you a few examples of what you can do with stateless functions, and then we'll sort of progress from from there. And I, I guess the the most interesting and definitely the most used example there is sort of the the image resizer. I mean, I think that pretty much every cloud provider, every serverless platform that that you see out there has that exact example because it, it's something that people can relate to. So, it's, so we're talking um, about uh, taking an image and and then resizing it and having it that exactly. stored somewhere else in, exactly. a, in a new shape or size. Exactly, exactly. And that obviously is all about being event-driven. I mean, the upload is an event, the resize is an event, uh, storing it somewhere is an event. So it's it's all about uh, being event-driven, making sure that, uh, that you can react to things as opposed to you having to go pull, go query, and um, that's also why things like uh, like more stateful serverless becomes very interesting, because in a stateless world, every time you need to get some data, you either rely on uh, the application or the service calling you to provide that data, um, or you're going to rely on, uh, on on an external database. And more often than not, 
it's a collection of the two. So you're mm -hmm. getting some data, but that's obviously not going to be all the data that you need in order to, uh, to do your job as a, as a stateless function. So what you're going to do is you're going to call out to a database, whatever that database might be, wherever that database might be. So you're, you're going to get some extra data in, and at the end of the day, or at the end of your function, then you need to do something with that data. And again, more often than not, it's putting it back into some form of data store. So as you can sort of see where this is going, a lot so of the is, time... This is like adding... So in terms of what a function can do, you have to string together lots and lots of functions to you know, have, have the you know, overall request or user, user expectation completed. Exactly, um, exactly. And, eat, and so each time each time a function, any function needs to do anything, you're saying it's gotta go run and fetch its, its state or data from, from somewhere. Absolutely. So if you have lots of functions that suddenly becomes lots and lots of uh, database calls. It becomes lots and lots uh -huh. and lots of database calls. And well, I mean, if, if it's serverless and, and developers don't need to really care about uh, infrastructure or how many, you know, they're, they're not paying for it unless it's being used. Why not just have lots and lots of functions and just keep going that way? So it's, it's not so much the functions growing that um, that's, that's the actual right, problem. The data access. Okay. It's the data access that's, that's much more influential in, in, in this scenario. I mean, if you, if you have a traditional database and, you know, most, uh, most databases that exist in the cloud today are still very much based on that on that traditional data model. Then every time you uh, you connect to that database, you're creating a connection. Now, since stateless functions are very short lived, um, they essentially terminate at uh, depending on which cloud provider you use. Let's say about fifteen minutes. So. Uh, every time a function starts, it has to create a connection. That's a bit of overhead, um, not just for your function, but also for your database. Your database now has to manage all those extra calls. So if you if you have one function, not that bad. If you have 10 or, or 1,000, maybe still not that bad. But if you are really successful, if you're really scaling it out, and you end up with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of invocations, then all of those uh, invocations are going to create a database connection. All of them have to be managed by your database. And that's, that's going to be really troublesome. That's, that's going to be hard for a database to scale with. Would scaling the, the database, so for example, Amazon S3, um, would just continually scaling that out, what would happen then? I, I suppose it would start to get rather expensive. It would start to get if, absolutely if rather <laughs> expensive, um, but also very hard. Um, scaling a database is probably one of the hardest things that you do in, uh, in, in cloud, actually in any type of infrastructure. Mm. Um, because a database usually has your your golden uh, golden master records of what is happening, what's the actual state of of my current data, um, what are what are the orders that someone has, what are what's like the payment history. Um, so if you want to scale that, you have to be sure it completely works. And um, doing that while everything else is running is just incredibly hard. Mm -hmm.
So if you can scale it somewhere else that makes it easier for you to focus on the things that matter, that's absolutely going to be so much easier to do. Um, and just to give you an example, there was this great report from uh, from IDC uh, last year, uh, which they call the uh, the global data sphere. Mm. And in there, they actually mentioned that by 2025, nearly 30% of all the data that we uh, that we consume or that we generate is going to be consumed in real time by the services that we build. Um, so to, to just, you know, tell you a bit more about that, because there are some in, incredible numbers in there. Um, it's predicted that we're going to be consuming and producing 175 zettabytes of data. Um, so 30% of that, you know, what our services are going to consume in real time, um, if we'd have to store that in a database, then even if we use the um, hard drives with the, the biggest capacity on the planet so far, which is 100 terabytes, we'd still need 1.8 billion hard drives in order to store everything. And I mean, sure, we're not going to put everything on a hard drive. So let's say that 15% of it is actually going to end up in, in a database somewhere um, that at some point we need to do something with. Then we'd still almost need a billion hard drives in order to right. store all that data. And if I knew what zettabytes were, um, that would also be that would also raise my eyebrows, I suppose. Yeah, um, <laughs> probably, probably. So, um, uh, so, so just to let me, let's let's stop for a second. Let, let's just make sure I understand the implications of this. So, the IDC says that in the next, but in you know, three or four years from now, uh, one third of all the data generated will be actually created and then consumed in real time. Meaning, we can't. There is no. There is no kind of gap in which everything can be stored and optimized and tuned and then a week or two later we'll make that data nice and nice and easy to get to you're saying that it's going to have to be created and consumed all at all at once essentially okay yeah, it, that, it that, has to be done in real time that has some real implement uh, implications so it sounds like what you're saying is that if we were going to try to do this with serverless functions uh, sorry stateless functions only we would be uh, somewhat somewhat limited absolutely absolutely i mean we're going to run into like the more practical limitations by the way just to uh just to help you get somewhat of a uh, uh of an understanding and i mean these these numbers are still going to be incredibly <laughs> large but one zettabyte is is about a billion terabytes so i mean the hard disk gotcha. i have uh, in my machine is about a terabyte um, so I have to have one billion machines on uh, on top of each other, or or at least scattered throughout the uh, the apartment I live in, and that's that's just incredible. That's such a mind blowing large number. Um, I I don't even really comprehend that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like talking about light years and distances in light years. Exactly, exactly. So, but, by the way, but but to come back to uh, to to, uh, to your question. Um, so if you if you think about things like real time financial services, if you think about things like uh, like IoT, um, we've we've come up with this this incredible awesome model which we call a digital twin, which essentially creates like uh, a, a replica of the actual mm -hmm. physical thing, but somewhere within within a data center. Um, 
and that that just makes it easy for us uh, in in the IT industry to uh, to go do things to it, like check its status, things like that. But it also means that it has to be fed continuously with the right updates, um, and that's sort of where we get back into uh, uh, in, into that into that previous question. Because if you have uh, an, an IoT uh, setup, that's probably not going to be one sensor. That's probably not going to be ten. It's probably going to be thousands. So all of those sensors are getting data in real time, and um, they'd have to store that somewhere. I mean, your your, your function is not going to be, uh, be living all the time in order to uh, receive that data and, and be queried about its, its continuous state. Um, so in, in order for, for like an IoT sensor to update its digital twin somewhere in the cloud, it has to receive a message. It has to go fetch the, uh, the current state. So the original data of that sensor, it has to then update it and it has to put it back somewhere so that the next time an update comes, it can actually grab the right current state. So if you do that for one sensor, that's gonna be okay. If you do that for 10, that's gonna be okay. But if you really talk about the, these large plants, these, um, these large farms even, where, where they use a lot of uh, connected technology, then doing this at massive scale is essentially going to bring us back to that uh, that whole discussion about about database limits because it's really hard to do. It's it's going to require so many co connected things. It's going to require so many things scaling properly, both up and down, and that is just one of the hardest things on on the planet, at least in the IT industry. Yeah, this is something I've heard before, and at the risk of bumming people out. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about how stateful uh, stateful data models make serverless a lot more compelling. Yeah, absolutely. So this this is, to be honest, one of the reasons why I joined Lightband because that vision that uh, that Jonas set out, I think it was um, well, it's twenty twenty one, so that's probably two years ago at uh, at KubeCon. That that was such an interesting outlook on uh, on where serverless needs to go and what function as a service really needs in order to uh, uh, to be useful for these kinds of use cases. So the, the whole idea about statefulness, and I I totally get that for a lot of the microservices that we've been almost taught to build. It sort of comes back to, yeah, just put everything into a database and that's going to be okay. And uh, the, the idea of stateful serverless kind of flips that model upside down. So when I when I started thinking about do I want to join Lightband or not, I, I actually had to read up on, on a lot of things that uh, that Jonas and a lot of people within within the community have said about that. And it it really is all about you need to make sure that your service can get the right data in the right context at the right time. So it was much more about making sure or letting the platform make sure that the right data finds your service. So when, when you think about um, what, what stateful serverless brings, and if I relate that to like that, that IoT sensor that we were just talking about, in that case, it, the, the function or the digital twin, however you want to call it, doesn't just get the actual state or the new message, but it also gets the current state of that, of that sensor. So it, instead of one input, you, you get two inputs, uh, which means that 
the first line of code that you're going to write is not go out to a database. The last line that you're going to write for your function is not put stuff back into a database. It essentially takes care of all of that for you. So it, it makes it easier to, uh, to essentially dynamically scale because all of a sudden as a developer, you're really only thinking about the code. You're thinking about the data objects that matter and essentially delegate literally everything else to the platform. So you said that, you know, a developer isn't thinking from, you know, at the beginning, let's get something from a database and at the end, let's put something back in the database. So what does, what, what is, what does it look like for stateful serverless then? So for, for stateful serverless, it, it really is all about uh, thinking about commands and events. It is far more event driven. So when, when when your your service gets gets a message, it's it's going to be an event. So let's think about uh, I'm I'm going to pick a, a different a different thing than IoT. Let's think about shopping carts. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to guess most people can relate to that. Um, so let's let's for a second think about what you're doing when you're walking into store. Um, assuming people still go to stores and everything. Yeah, I don't know uh, about so, that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so you're, you're walking around pushing that that shopping cart and you're putting stuff in. And that's essentially an event. It's you telling to the shopping cart, um, this is what I want to buy. Now, I don't think a lot of people are actually saying to their shopping cart, hey, I want to buy this uh, this pack of gum. I want to buy this uh, this bottle of Coke, you know, things like that. But yeah, there we, are commands. We, we go to a different aisle when we see people like that. True. Yeah, that's that's probably true. <laughs> um, uh, but th they are, as in, in essence, the commands that, uh, that that we give to that card. Uh, and when you when you think about that in like a stateful serverless kind of way, then your card is is essentially the, the data object that that you have. And you're creating all these commands, these events that tell it how do I how do I manipulate that card? So let's say I, uh, I want to buy a book, I want to buy a CD, I want to buy a, um, a, a movie, then what I'm essentially doing is I'm sending a command saying, this is the object that I want to buy, this is my cart or you know, some, some form of ID, and now go put that in. Um, and that's in essence all you need from a stateful serverless point of view. And then obviously the uh, the backend is um, depending on, on how you implement it is going to be something like a key value store. And in that case, it only captures the, uh, the, the latest current state. But thinking about some some more uh, like more difficult data access patterns to uh, uh, to create what stateful serverless actually allows you to do is something like event sourcing. So making sure that you just capture all the events, all the commands that say, I want to add this, I want to add this, I want to remove this, I want to add uh, this new thing into my shopping cart. Then all of a sudden you have all these events that are incredibly interesting for uh, for, for what you're doing with your business. So it, it not only uh, helps you create these really difficult, really abstract data models. I mean, it's really hard to properly do something at such a large scale, especially when you think about distributed systems and distributed data. But it's also really, uh, really hard to go capture all those events and make sure that they are ready for someone else to go look at. So 
in that shopping cart example, it might be really interesting to know for uh, for for the the data science team, or probably for you know the, the business side of uh, of the house, to know what kind of uh, what kind of items are put into a shopping cart, but also removed from it without paying. Um, so what are what are the objects that people look like? Oh, this is awesome, and then later before they check out, realize maybe it's not such a great idea to go buy this. So it's it's incredibly hard to go build those systems and stay full serverless, especially uh, the way that the way that we do it at uh, at Lightbend helps you create those kinds of uh, of data access patterns. Okay, I, I like I like how you've explained it. Um, so what are some of the what are you know what are some of the the clean clean cut benefits of of stateful serverless compared to uh, stateless, let's say. Sure. So in all honesty, um, and I've, I've probably wrote this a bunch of times somewhere, so I'm, I'm sort of okay saying this. Um, the whole idea of serverless obviously is that you don't have to deal with, uh, with servers. Um, I think I actually said in, uh, in, in one of my talks that I did somewhere that if I never have to touch a server again, I'm going to be so happy. Um, and that that not only holds true for uh, for like servers, but the more and more I think about it, it also starts to hold true for for other pieces of infrastructure. Uh, so one of the biggest benefits of, of stateful serverless is that because it combines a lot of things that that are sort of in that spectrum of serverless capabilities into one package, that you just have to do less. You have less distractions, less overhead. I mean, I'm not going to care about the uh, the databases and how I set up the database clusters, how I do the database sharding. I don't necessarily want to be caring about the message queues. I I just need it to work. I need it to be there. So stateful serverless just gives you less distractions, less overhead. Um, and as I was as I was talking about as well just now, it it really uh, democratizes these advanced data models. It things like event sourcing, CQRS, but also CRDTs. Um, and I know that especially that last one can can sort of sound like uh, a hard term, but it's essentially what they mean with a conflict free uh, a a uh, conflict-free uh, resolvable data type. So that's that's awesome. And that essentially means that whenever you send updates, the system will take care that the update is done in proper, uh, properly and in the right order. So let's think about, and I know this is gonna be, um, it's gonna be tricky to, uh, to say, but let's think about voting. Um, so in the case of voting, you want to make sure that you have the right votes to the right, uh, to, to the right candidate or something. Um, and you want to make sure that, that the, the vote only is processed once. So those CRDTs are really meant for, for that kind of, um, that kind of stuff. They, they're also great for, uh, for things like collaboration. I mean, if you, especially in this pandemic, we've all transitioned to working from home using digital tools. Um, things like uh, like like uh, online document platforms um, where where we collaborate uh, it 
that relies on some of that same uh, same idea so that there is there is like one one object um, that captures all the data and then if you and i start editing at uh, editing at, at the same uh, same time that thing that object that entity will take care that everything is processed in in the right order so the, the, the power of, uh, in our case, obviously, Akka serverless really is all about making those data models easy for a developer to use. And the cool thing is that you can essentially mix and match those patterns within your project so that um, you can have a, a more traditional like CRUD-like operation where you just store things as key value pairs, but you can absolutely mix that with something that's more on the, uh, the CQRS or event sourcing side where you capture all those events so that at the, uh, while you're looking at the key values, uh, you can also look at all the events that uh, that have come in and mixing those together, making sure that you have the widest set of, of data models available. That's something that Stateful Serverless and especially Aka Serverless in our case is making easy for developers. And speaking about easy for developers, um, uh, and I, I have to admit, I know that I'm on a, uh, a, a more Scala slash Java oriented podcast, but <laughs> the last time I wrote Java code was probably around the time that I had to get my son certified uh, uh, Java developer certificate. Um, and that I think was when Java five or six was like the, the most recent version. And, and we quite a few versions uh, beyond that. So I started using, uh, using languages like, uh, like JavaScript, like Golang, like TypeScript. And for a lot of those languages, platforms and ideas like this are, uh, are just not ready. I mean, they, they don't necessarily exist. So having a platform that that I can use that allows me to write in the language that I want using the tools that I want, using the technologies that I want and still be able to get some of those uh, amazing benefits, but also do it in a way that I can collaborate with some folks on my team that are absolutely highly skilled in, um, in Java, in Scala, in some of the other languages. That is amazing. It just makes sure that you know, you have those multiple languages, but you can all work using the same types of state models. What are some of the other um, requirements for a, a language like uh, Go or TypeScript or Scala to, to become integratable with Akka serverless? So the, the, the number one thing is um, it has to support gRPC. In fact, that's pretty much the only thing. As long as a language has, has gRPC support available, then you could bring it into, uh, into Aka serverless. Um, so that means that languages that I haven't mentioned, but things like Ruby, C++, um, .NET, obviously, but also things like Kotlin, um, that they could easily run on, uh, on Aka serverless. And, um, it, it also means that, you know, if the language doesn't support that, like Shakespeare, which apparently is a programming language, <laughs> um, I know, right? Um, that those wouldn't necessarily be able to run on, uh, on Aka serverless, but it, it, it also means that as long as it supports gRPC, which probably most of the common languages do, uh, you could bring that to run on Aka serverless. Well, uh... Maybe not not to get too far down the rabbit hole here, but why is gRPC such a special um, protocol in this case? 
So gRPC actually does does a bunch of things. And for most people, including myself, uh, gRPC is, is pretty much tied to, to protocol buffers or, or protobufs. Um, and those, those protocol buffers are, are essentially the way how you describe the interaction, what the objects are that are going to go over that, uh, that, that, that gRPC protocol. Um, so do, those two are, are usually tied at the hip. And essentially what it means is that, and this is something that started a long time ago, um, as we started thinking about how can we make more optimal, uh, optimal use of, of available bandwidth, we wanted to have something that was a faster protocol um, so that we, only, uh, we not only needed to build faster hardware in order to, uh, um, to keep up with, with demand, we also wanted to make better use of, of the software. So gRPC as a protocol really allows you to, uh, to make much more, uh, much better use. The other, the other main benefit that it has is it's built on HTTP2. So HTTP2 makes a lot better use of the available infrastructure. It makes a lot better use of the available bandwidth by, uh, by doing things like multiplexing. And I know that this is going into something super technical. Uh, so I, I do apologize for that. Um, but it essentially makes sure that the bandwidth is much easier used or much more optimal used. So you can just push through a lot more updates, a lot more uh, purchases that you want to make in, in the same, uh, same number of bytes, if you will. Okay. That, that's really edifying for me. Um, of course, uh, HTTP is, is supported with Aka serverless, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just one of those things you, you get out of the box. All right. Well, Leon, this was a really excellent conversation. Um, I think the next time we talk, I'd like to have you teach me a little bit more about some of the specific elements of Aka serverless, like event sourced entities, value entities, views, and actions, and kind of how those uh, play a role in enabling the patterns, the data access patterns that we uh, mentioned, like event sourcing, CQRS, and CRDTs, and CRUD, and so on. But uh, I look forward to our next conversation. So thanks a lot. Is there any any final message you'd like to give to folks? Uh, obviously, Aka Serverless is free to try. We're very um, eagerly looking for people to check it out and let us know what they think on discuss.lightben.com. But uh, any final words for us, Leon? So at, at the risk of, um, of, of trying to, to sell people things, um, I actually want to want to remind people of a uh, of a free workshop that we're running. Um, so depending on when you're listening to this, we're actually doing a five week workshop on Anaka Serverless using Java. Um, so where we're going to go into a lot of the things I uh, I just talked about. One of my awesome colleagues. What am I saying? One of our awesome colleagues, uh, Sean Walsh, is um, is running that workshop. I highly recommend it. Uh, because he's going to go into a lot more detail about some of the things that uh, that we just talked about. All right. Yeah. Uh, excellent mention. And I'll include a link to that. You'll either get to catch up with our ongoing sessions or you'll be able to watch the recordings. All right. Well, thanks once again, Leon. Great speaking with you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for having me.